Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Focus on Albany. I'm Cynthia Pooler. My guest today is David Lombardo, uh, and he's here to talk about Kathy Hochul's first month in office. So, on your on your radio show, David, have you been covering a lot of um, issues pertaining to? the governor's first month in office? Yeah, I'd say we've been focusing a lot on the announcements that she's been choosing to make over the first 45 to 50 days of her administration. A lot of these Mm -hmm. things are uh, in what I would call progressive friendly. They seem to be things done to shore up her bona fides on the left, an area where she might not be seen as having the strongest credentials. They've also been heavily oriented toward New York City, where she also doesn't have the longest track record of, or experience, considering she's a politician from Buffalo. I think just by chance, her first months on the job overlapped with Climate Week, and I think she used that as a chance to get a lot of environmental news out there. So we've been doing a lot on that front, whether it's two big transmission projects that she announced, uh, an increase in spending, proposed spending on an Environmental Bond Act next year, going for $4 billion as opposed to former Governor Cuomo's $3 billion. But in addition to the policy, she's also been doing some personnel behind the scenes, and we've been covering that a lot in terms of who she's been bringing on to shape her administration, whether it's her top secretary, uh, whether it's her communications director, or what Cuomo officials she's decided to not keep around. And this includes Health Commissioner Howard Zucker, who will not be long for this Albany world, uh, as the former New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Bissett, is set to take over on, on December 1st. So we've been focusing a lot on how she's tried to shape her administration, largely in context with uh, Andrew Cuomo and how it's different in his administration, and the policies that she's choosing to stake out in her initial run as governor, because I think that's how a lot of people are going to get to know her. So that's what we've been focusing on. So you do Capitol Press Room every day, Mm -hmm. um, and you do it right in the Capitol, right? Yep, we record right on the third floor of the Capitol in between the hallway that gets you from the Senate chamber and the Assembly chamber. So overall, would you say that uh, the governor's first month in office has been interesting and exciting? I would say it has definitely been interesting because what we're getting to witness is essentially her rebranding effort because for most of the state, Kathy Hochul is not someone that they have a lot of familiarity with. And if they do know her, it's really only in the context of being Andrew Cuomo's lieutenant governor. So it's been interesting to see how she's choosing to define herself to a largely new audience. And and like I said earlier, she's kind of staking out uh, what you would expect from a politician who's looking to run for governor on her own right next year and needs to shore up her progressive base for a primary and a progressive base that largely exists in New York City. So we've been dissecting things like 
her lieutenant governor announcement where she chose Brian Benjamin, a state senator out of Harlem, a pretty conventional pick. So that's been more interesting to think about. You know, she leaned into this idea that she needed to shore up for her regional uh, base for a more geographically diverse ticket while also needing to be uh, more racially diverse in, in her ticket. And that's the kind of thing that I find interesting. I don't necessarily find it exciting to cover because at least so far, it's all been kind of predictable and kind of following a playbook that you would expect. I think the interesting thing has been really Andrew Cuomo, uh, her predecessor, who, while sidelined, remains an active player in this drama and one that you might not have thought when he announced his resignation for the quote-unquote you know, betterment of New York State and to avoid any sort of drama is what he claimed because he's been this wild card from the sidelines putting out statements about the, the investigation into his conduct, putting out generic statements that seem to be uh, an indictment of Kathy Hochul. So that's been really the most exciting thing about the initial Hochul administration. And then the one other player in this is the legislature. I wouldn't say that they've been very exciting or interesting. I think they've been more taking a hands-off approach, at least initially, and have taken this idea of being supporting players, role players. So they're following the governor's lead, which isn't very exciting, but it is kind of what you might expect with a new governor as you're feeling them out. Oh, um her her lieutenant governor pick mm-hmm. do you think she, do you think she would have been smarter to pick Jamani Williams because Jamani Williams is making overtures that he wants to run for governor and um I think if Kathy Hochul did like a team of rivals where she would grab everybody that Lincoln did, his rivals. Do you think it would have been a better choice for Hochul to pick Jamani Williams for lieutenant governor? I think there's pros and cons to it. But first, before we think about the political ramifications, we should think about just governing style and political ideology. And I think that Jumani Williams represents someone who is out of step from the way that Governor Kathy Hochul sees government functioning. I think he's much more to the left than she is. I think his approach to government would not be in step with hers. And as such, I don't think she would want him as a lieutenant governor from that perspective alone. I think she wants someone who she feels comfortable with, feels in lockstep with. That being said, I think from a political perspective, it makes sense to take your potential rivals off the board. If you assume that as lieutenant governor, he would be content running as lieutenant governor in the future in 2022 and not primarying her because we've seen, you know, that arrangement where a lieutenant governor comes for the throne. And if that was the case, then that could look bad for Kathy Hochul because she essentially gave him approval by picking him as lieutenant governor under this scenario. 
And if you have said, oh, this person can be lieutenant governor, you've essentially said this person could be governor. And if that's the case and then they primary you, that's difficult. Um, when you think about the, the team of rivals idea as well, I think that Abraham Lincoln in 1861 had a much more fractured electorate than Kathy Hochul has. I think Lincoln and, and, and picking Seward and Stanton to fill his cabinet was trying to appeal to a wide and diverse country that was on the precipice of civil war and while also wanting to get the best and brightest minds. I don't think Kathy Hochul has the same problem. I think that for the most part, when we think about a New York state, there is a large overwhelming democratic enrollment and there's a, it's a United state besides the whole civil war thing. So I won't even go down that path, but also from a primary perspective, I think that we sometimes overestimate uh, the role that the progressive left can play in primaries, especially larger primaries. We've seen upsets in congressional races that were low turnout. We've seen upsets in, in assembly and Senate primaries that were relatively low turnout. We haven't seen these kind of primary upsets at the statewide level. You know, in 2018, Andrew Cuomo easily fended off uh, Cynthia Nixon, while the IDC members did not do so well. And, and I think what that speaks to is the strength of the more moderate Democratic primary base, which kind of negates the need for her tapping Jumani Williams. You know, there are political benefits to her picking him. I also think it's not necessarily a slam dunk from a political perspective. And I think from a governmental perspective, it doesn't necessarily work. And, and finally, there's the problem that Jumani Williams might not have actually wanted that job. You know, I don't think he necessarily wants to be inside the tent where he has to take ownership of Hochul policies, for example, as her lieutenant governor. I think he would have rather been outside the tent as he is now running as a challenger. Uh, additionally, we, we saw this potential dynamic play out with uh, the Bronx borough president um, who uh, reportedly told Kathy Hochul that he didn't want the job and he would have been a pretty good choice, Ruben Diaz Jr. So it's also not necessarily a given that Jumani Williams would have accepted if, if offered the job. So I think there's a lot of moving parts and, and there's not really a, a slam dunk alternative universe that we can assume would have made sense for Kathy Hochul. You know, just a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned Andrew Cuomo mm -hmm. and all of the stuff that he's doing. Um, obviously, Andrew Cuomo is not going quietly into the night. Not are at all. You surprised? Are you surprised by all of the stuff that he's been putting out and his staff has been putting out? I think prior to the last, what, six months, I would have been surprised by this. But after seeing how the administration responded to Lindsey Boylan's medium post up until the August release of the attorney general's report, I, I'm not surprised by any of this. I think it's all in keeping with the version of Andrew Cuomo that we've seen, this version of Andrew Cuomo who 
when backed into a corner, does not retreat, does not necessarily look for a peaceful end, but goes down swinging. And I think he's <laughs> like Napoleon. He's uh, retreated for, for now. I think he's uh, looking to build some sort of a comeback. I think if he saw a path back to the executive mansion, I think he would take it. And I think he's exploring that based on people uh, who are smarter and more connected than me who tell me that's what sort of his thinking would be, that he will be weighing all the different calculus to see what political future he has. Um, I think right now what we're seeing is Andrew Cuomo, the chaos maker. He has uh, no real skin in the game. He has a, a base of support that is not going to go away at this point. There are New Yorkers who feel he got railroaded. There are New Yorkers who feel like he did a good job as governor and the allegations against him uh, either are not that serious or are not that serious compared <laughs> to what he meant as a governor. So I think that he is always going to have some base of support that he can rely on. And as such, I'm not surprised to see him trying to figure out a way to utilize it. I think that until Andrew Cuomo is completely off the board, this is still you know, his game and we're just playing in it. Now we're just playing in the aftermath of it and he's playing from a weakened position. But I think that we still need to think of everything in Albany through the lens of the world that Andrew Cuomo created. Um, would you be surprised if there was a subway series for the presidency, meaning Donald Trump versus Andrew Cuomo? I would be absolutely shocked by that. There's, there's no way yeah. that Andrew Cuomo is going to be the Democratic nominee for president if that's the scenario you're laying out. Okay. You don't there's think not, not, a, not a chance in the world. Not, he couldn't have been the nominee before this scandal, and he most certainly cannot be the nominee in the wake of it. Besides just the fact that this is not a gentleman who can go to Iowa and do retail. This is not a guy who can go to New Hampshire and you know knock on doors and kiss babies. This has uh, never been his strong suit, even before uh, a scandal that would have made him just persona non grata in these areas. So the chance of a subway series in the 2024 presidential election is less than zero if uh, such a number existed for the point of percentages. But everybody discounted Donald Trump in 2016. I think, I think never say never or anything could I am confident saying never, never, never with that. There was a path for Donald Trump at, at all points. And I think that people who completely discounted Donald Trump in a Republican primary are, were not serious uh, commentators who weren't thinking about or knowing their electorate uh, in 2016. So I, I don't think those two comparisons uh, are apt. Okay, um, fair enough. Um, let's talk about uh, the race for governor um, mm -hmm. next year. There is uh, there's talk of 
of course, Jamani Williams. There's yep. uh, there's talk of Tish James. And, mm-hmm. you know, given the fact that she's going to have quite a bit on, on her hands as far as rivals, maybe, and then she's got the uh, state of the state, she's got the budget coming up with primaries, I think it's going to be really very interesting. What do you think? I think it'll be an interesting race if Tish James gets in because I think she has the stature that makes her a compelling challenger to Kathy Hochul, especially in a one-on-one matchup. I think that Kathy Hochul needs to be considered the favorite to win the Democratic primary at this point. Uh, She has the institution behind her, as we saw with Jay Jacobs' nomination uh, in early October, excuse me, endorsement in early October. And like I said earlier, with these sort of primaries that take place on a very large scale, the establishment candidate typically wins. We just saw that in 2020 with Joe Biden. There was not a ton of excitement maybe about Joe Biden, but he was kind of the establishment choice. And he, at the end of the day, won out that fight. And I think Kathy Hochul kind of has that same sort of path. I don't think a lot of Democratic primary voters are excited about her. And I don't think they're going to necessarily be any sort of huge uprising or groundswell momentum to give her another give her her own term in office but i think kathy hochel needs to be considered the favorite because she has uh the institutional support and she also gets to be governor right now she gets to make these announcements about win projects and social justice priorities and then she's going to get to control the budget and that's going to be a big uh cudgel in her utility Uh, as she gets to lay out priorities and gets to show people that she is governor. You know, Jay Jacobs, chairman of the Democratic Party, I think made a good point recently as he said that Kathy Hochul is the governor and everyone else needs to basically make a case why she shouldn't be the governor. And that's harder when you don't really have anything to knock her on. And at this point, I think that she hasn't created an opening for a lot of other candidates. So talking about those other candidates, though, I think that Jumani Williams, who is the only other candidate who really has uh, made substantive moves toward running, could give Kathy Hochul a hard time in a one-on-one race. But I think we've also really seen this play out already in 2018, and he he lost to her. I don't think that calculus changes uh, too much from 2018 to 2022, so I think that she would be able to hold him off. If Tish James gets in the race, I think it's hard to imagine that Jumani Williams would stay in the race. I think he would look at the field and say, okay, here's another progressive politician also from Brooklyn who would be running in the same lane as me, and there's a good chance that we would end up cannibalizing our primary votes and as a result, give Kathy Hochul an even more overwhelming victory than she might have otherwise had. So I think he's somebody who is going to look at the field and see where his opportunities are, because we've always seen him 
do that. He has been very smart and calculating about the fights he chooses and when he chooses to have those fights. And the candidates we haven't talked about, potential Democrats, are Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, who's leaving office at the end of the year. I think if he can figure out a way for him to have any pathway, if there's any constituency that he can put together, then I think this is somebody who has nothing left to lose and has already shown that read the room uh, in terms of his own political future and might run. If there's a union who throws his weight behind him, if there's a pack of some sort that's willing to get behind him, I think he jumps in the race. And I think he's a complicating factor for, for both candidates, both Hochul and Tish James, if that's what the field looks like. And then you also have uh, some Long Island hopefuls in the form of Congressman Tom Swazi and Suffolk County Executive Steve Ballone. Steve Ballone really had nothing to lose uh, by running. Essentially, it would uh, just expand his name recognition outside of Long Island because this is not a, a re-election year for him, whereas Tom Swazi, this would have to be a big change of pace for him because to, to run for governor would mean likely sacrificing his congressional seat. And I think he has to think of that seat, uh, that, that run for governor as, as a long shot, whereas he has a pretty safe congressional seat. So, so right now, with the caveat that the field is still taking shape, I think that Kathy Hochul needs to feel pretty good about her chances of being governor in 2023. Zephyr Teachout had mentioned that if um, Tish James ran for governor, mm-hmm. she would run for attorney general. What do you think of that scenario? I think that uh, Zephyr Teachout is the perennial candidate in New York, having run uh, for office in 2014, 2016, and 2018. So I'm not surprised by the fact that she is saying uh, she will run for attorney general. I think that there is a pathway for her unless the Democratic establishment gets behind another candidate because she has not been successful in primaries where she takes on establishment candidates. So in 2018, she loses to Tish James, who had the backing of the party. In 2014, she loses to Andrew Cuomo, who had the backing of the party. In 2016, she basically was the de facto choice uh, to take on John Fasto and it didn't go well in the general. So I, I think that's mm-hmm. not surprising for her to, to do that. I will just say that on our show on Monday, on Columbus Day, we spoke with Assemblyman Clyde Vanell, a Queens Democrat and also attorney, who told us that if Tish James does run, he might throw his hat in the ring. He's exploring it as well. And I think we'll see other establishment Dems who would might want that job and might run if they uh, see a pathway to, uh, you know, get that post with Tish James out of the way. So it's going to be a very interesting uh, winter, wouldn't you say? Uh, it definitely could be. You know, I hope it doesn't let us down and we get all excited for, you know, a four-way primary for governor and multiple people running for AG. And uh, don't forget about the Republican side of things where they might have a primary between Lee Zeldin and Rob Astorino and Andrew Giuliani. So there's the potential for a lot of excitement. But there's also the potential for a lot of these people to look around uh, and see that their political chances aren't so great and they might back out and you know, the legislative session might take a more traditional path as well, and that could be boring. 
so you know, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers as a journalist that we have an exciting uh, next year, but uh, you know, always bracing myself for the possibility of a letdown. So, will the legislature um, be coming up here in person, and will the doors be open, and will there be press conferences and speeches on the third floor? What do you think, or do you think it'll all be on Zoom like it has been? I think that the Capitol will definitely be open to people as opposed to the last uh, session and a half that has not been accessible in person to people. As of right now, the state law that allows for the legislature to basically convene remotely is set to expire in the middle of January. So if they decide to extend that through the legislative session, if they just look around the landscape with the pandemic and say it's not safe to to do this on a regular basis, or they look around and say, I don't want to do this, and they decide just to use the pandemic as a rationale, then it's possible we will see that same sort of hybrid model again, which means limited uh, in-person access to politicians, whether it's in committee meetings and on the session floor or in press conferences. But I do think we will have a more active capital than we've seen in recent months. How active it'll be, probably not like uh, pre-COVID times, but I think that we will see uh, a lot of our friends from around the state that we might not have seen uh, in the last uh, 18 months. Do you think that COVID changed everything as far as meetings and stuff? Or do you think at some point we'll go back to the way it was before? I think that we will have a much greater reliance on in-person meetings in state government uh, than we have right now. But I think that experience has shown that there is a role for remote options and remote engagement, uh, not just because uh, the technology exists, but because it's a proven way to get more people engaged. You know, if you're someone who has 30 minutes and uh, you live in Buffalo, then, you know, you can't testify or necessarily watch a hearing conveniently in the past. But now both those options are a lot more readily available and there's more of a focus on uh, video casting like a hearing. So I think that people are, more cognizant of making that better. The one thing I'm really curious to see is what this means for the assembly and the way it does its committee meetings, because for five years now, excuse six years now, Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty has been talking about doing remote webcasts of their committee meetings. And even today, they don't do video casts of the, their meetings, even though the technology exists. So I think as we emerge from this pandemic, Hopefully, there will be less of an excuse for that type of uh, lack of transparency that we've seen from the Assembly since we've seen for 18 months that everybody can webcast, and hopefully the Assembly will be webcasting its in-person and uh, remote meetings with a video function and saving those meetings for future online viewing because they're not doing that either right now, which is a real transparency failure. So, Dave, give yourself a little plug. Okay. Well, I hope everyone will listen to the Capitol Press Room. We're available 
streaming at our website, capitalpressroom.org, every weekday from 11 to noon. You can also download the show as a podcast uh, wherever you get your favorite podcast, whether it's Apple, Google Play. Uh, you can find our content, including written content, on our website. Again, that's capitalpressroom.org. And the radio show is syndicated every weekday on stations around the state. You can find the schedule, including those times and the stations, again, on our website, capitalpressroom.org. And follow us on Twitter at capressroom, or follow me on Twitter at poozer87. Yep, poozer87. Thank you, David. Uh, I look forward to talking with you again. You've been listening to David Lombardo of the Capitol Press Room. I'm Cynthia Pooler. This is Focus on Albany. If you like the show, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. David, have a wonderful day, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Cynthia.